everybody, welcome to the book of Philippians. So for those of you who have been with us over the course of the last few weeks, especially this summer, you know that we were walking through some of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, specifically the books of Job and Ecclesiastes. So today we take a hard turn uh, toward the New Testament and looking at a totally different genre of scripture. Of course, wisdom can be found throughout all the Bible, but specifically for this fall, we're going to be looking at some of Paul's epistles, and um, the epistles are simply letters that Paul wrote. Some of the letters that we have from Paul are called the prison letters. These were letters that Paul wrote to churches while he was in prison in Rome. And um, so this fall, we're going to be looking at three of those, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so today, we start with the book of Philippians. Uh, this letter, uh, the, the book of Philippians, is has, has been called by some the most joyful book in the Bible. Because all the way through the letter, Paul really speaks of this inner joy that he has. In fact, it's mentioned 16 times in four chapters. And of course, Paul, in in the way that he wrote, was an incredible uh, writer um, of these letters and encourager. But he, of course, advised the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. We'll see that when we get to the end of the book. But I think the reason he could encourage them to do so was because he had himself found the true source of joy. And it's interesting, right? Because when we think of joy, we maybe think of happiness, and those two things are certainly related. But really, some have defined biblical joy as this level of happiness or contentment that is outside of um, life's circumstances. It's founded in something beyond what we're experiencing in life. And so it's always interesting when you think about the most joyful book of the Bible, or maybe the, the book of the Bible that talks about joy the most, being written by a guy who's under persecution in prison in Rome. And so um, very interesting, but we can learn a lot. And then Paul says uh, in this letter that he had not only learned in whatever state he was to be content, he had learned to rejoice in whatever state he was in. And so he was truly overflowing with joy. And we'll see this throughout. Um, uh, this book of the Bible contains some of the most beloved verses in all of scripture. For instance, chapter 121, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Chapter 4, verse 11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do everything through him 
who gives me strength. Chapter 4, verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So there are definitely some noteworthy memory verses and passage of scripture in this book. And yet, this book also contains some great doctrinal statements. Um, now, of course, it's not written in the same way as the book of Romans. It doesn't set out to be a theological treatise on a specific doctrine, but there are certainly some incredible doctrines um, that it contains. Uh, specifically, what we would think of uh, Philippians chapter 2, where probably the greatest doctrinal passage concerning Christology exists, where it talks about having this mind in us who is in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That's the great kenosis passage. And what does it mean that Christ emptied himself and took on the form of a of a, a servant of a slave he became a man and so his incarnation god becoming flesh is really played out in this passage of scripture so not only is are there lots of inspirational points and encouraging points we know that the book of philippians contains some great doctrinal statements as well. In a, in a special way, I, I think the book of Philippians also reveals the mind of Paul. Paul's mind was filled with peace. I mean, he was rejoicing and preaching the gospel. And so, in the midst of being in prison, he has this mind that is clear, that is focused, that is at rest because of what he believes about the power of the gospel and the work of the kingdom of God playing out in him. And so throughout the study, we will get glimpses into Paul's mind and the way he thought of these things. But there was a secret that I think we see in the life of Paul that's so um, informative for the life of Christians, it can, it can be answered by answering this question, why did Paul have joy in a place and at a time like that? Um, he, if he could have joy in these circumstances, why do so few believers and Christians have real joy in their life's circumstances? In other words, what was Paul's Secret. What was the key that he found? I think the secret is, as we'll see, revealed throughout the book. It's a simple one. Paul had filled his mind with Christ. Everything that was going on in Paul's thinking and Paul's being was focused on this gospel message. It was focused on Christ. And I've read somewhere, I believe it's true, that the human mind can't be consumed with two things at once, right? It's, it's, and, and even Jesus said this, right? You cannot serve two masters. Either you can serve God or you can serve money, but you can't serve both. Well, you can serve God, you can serve 
blank, whatever that is, you're going to serve one of the two. And I feel like for, for so many of us as believers, the reason we struggle to have joy and to find joy and to live like we see Paul living his life and having this mind throughout this passage of scriptures because our minds are divided. Our allegiances are divided. We're trying to serve two or three or 10 masters and it's just not possible. And so throughout this study, I'm hopeful that the Lord will use his word to draw us back to see the glorious truths of the gospel. And that that will cause us to be totally focused on Christ and our allegiance to him. So with that introduction, let's jump into the passage of scripture today. We're going to look at Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Let's read it. It says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's stop here and just look at these uh, couple verses. Uh, for, for some of us, maybe we've studied Paul's letters before, and we read these opening greetings and introductions, and it's kind of like, well, let's just read through that to get to the main passage of Scripture. But it's interesting here because this greeting that Paul expresses to the Philippians is different from the greetings and introductions we find in some of the other epistles. As you know, these epistles were letters that would at times be widely distributed throughout um, uh, different groups of people. And so because of that, in Paul's introduction, he would communicate why the audience should listen to him. He would say something like, I'm an apostle or I'm called out by God. In other words, you can listen to me because I'm not just some random guy off the street trying to convince you of these things. I've been called by God. Therefore, I have authority and you can listen to me and take these words to heart. But here in these um, opening verses, we see something different. We see a, a different tone that Paul takes with this church. It's it's more of a a personal letter, right? It's as if you are writing to a group of people that you know in this intimate way. Um, Paul will go on to say in this passage, they've been in the trenches together. I mean, it would be like one soldier writing to a fellow soldier who they fought shoulder to shoulder with in battle. It's this intimacy, it's this personability that we see. And so Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, I mean, he's writing to these saints. He says he's with the overseers and deacons, but I really want to hone in in verse one. He says, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, in the Greek language, this word servant here is really the word for slave or bond servant. And I just want to point this out. I found this very interesting that Paul would call himself a slave 
of Christ. There, there are some huge implications, I believe, for Paul when he makes this statement. As I, as I study these things, it was pretty incredible um, what I what I found. So as I went back and studied, there were three ways that people in those days could become a slave. Number one, you could become a slave by conquest. That is to say, two uh, warring armies would come together for battle, and they would fight it out. And the the army that was victorious would take slaves from the other army and even members of those nations into captivity back to their country. Of course, we see this uh, kind of slavery played out in the Old Testament, even with the people of God. Remember, because of their rebellion, God warned them through the prophets, I'm going to judge you. These foreign nations are going to come in and take you into captivity. And so that was one of the ways people could become a slave, was a slave by conquest. The second way they could become a slave was they were slaves by birth. So if you were a slave and you had a child, that child was automatically a slave. They would grow up as a slave and they would be sort of confined to that life for their whole life. Number three, a person could become slave by owing a debt that they could not pay. So in payment for this debt that they couldn't pay, they became a slave to their debtor in that way. And so you can probably see where this is going. Um, These three ways people could become slaves. Now, we know biblically, the scriptures say in our natural state, we are slaves to sin. Okay, well, how does that come about? Look at the relation between these things. Slaves by conquest. There is a power that sin and sin nature possesses that we cannot win. There is a war there that we are unable to be victorious over in our natural um, bodies and our uh, natural souls. As a result, we are slaves by conquest. Sin has defeated us, therefore we're slaves to sin. Number two, we're slaves to birth by birth, right? You can think back to Psalm 51 where David says, I was conceived in sin, right? I mean, David had this understanding that because of the sin curse that was placed on Adam, in the garden, because of their his rebellion there, we all carry this sin curse, this slavery to sin by birth, by nature. And number three, of course, we're slaves by debt. We owe a debt because of this sin that we cannot pay. It's impossible for us to pay the price that it's that's required to be freed from this slavery. And so I feel like when Paul says he's a slave of God, he has this understanding of what he used to be a slave to. That was sin. And we know for Paul, it was this miraculous conversion experience that he had 
that he had when Christ himself showed up and blinded him and said, why are you persecuting me? And at that point, Christ changed Paul's heart. And so Paul never got over that reality. The reality is that he was a slave to sin. Now, there were a couple ways that people could be freed from this slavery. Number one, they could earn their freedom. For some, they could live the type of life as a slave that pleased the master enough where the master would free them. They could earn their freedom back. Or number two, they could be given freedom when somebody else paid the debt that they owed. I mean, you can see the gospel here, right? I mean, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the idea here, of course, is that Christ has bought us. He has redeemed us from this slavery to sin so that we are now set free from that. And we are his people. We are his redeemed. And so when Paul says he's a slave of Christ, this is not a derogatory type of slavery that Paul is thinking of. This is this joyful expression and devotion to Christ because of these realities that Paul knows have existed in his soul, that Christ has saved him and freed him from the bondage of sin. As a result of that, Paul's life is willful, joyful service to Christ and to his kingdom. And so, man, there's a lot there in just that one word, but I think that really gives us a picture of Paul's mindset throughout this whole book. Why can he have joy? There you go. Because of these realities, because these are the realities, these are the truths that have gripped Paul's mind to such an extent that there's no life circumstance that could distract him from living and thinking and um, uh, acting in accordance with these realities in his life. So he says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, for this passage specifically, it's interesting here because Paul really calls out to our attention this bond that he has with this community of believers. They are one. They are partners. They are devoted to one another. There's this love, this deep-rooted love that he shares with this community of faith that I think is helpful for us in thinking how we are to love and be bonded with in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's look at that in verses 3 through 11. Paul says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
and I am sure of this, that you who begin a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pause there and look at these verses. Paul calls these people partners in the gospel, co-workers, community members, partners. As I mentioned, it's as if these soldiers have stood shoulder to shoulder on the front lines of the gospel going forth into people's lives, into cities, into regions of the known world that has never been known before. Paul says, we did that together. We were partners in that. And it's interesting because Paul here starts this um, understanding. He starts this communication about their partnership by talking about how he's praying for them. He expresses to them, look, brothers and sisters, you can know this. In all my remembrance of you, I am praying I am making these prayers for you with joy. And so I wondered then if we can take a step back and look at this practically. How many times have we told someone, hey, I'll be praying for you? Or, hey, uh, um, how can I pray for you? And those are not bad questions. Those are not bad statements. Those are good things. How many times have we circled back and said, brother or sister, I just prayed for you. I literally just sending a text message or making a phone call or stopping in the hall in the church or when we meet with these brothers and sisters and saying, hey, I want you to know that I have been diligently praying for you. In fact, I just did it. I just prayed for you and how you're working through these things. But I think one of the things we see here about Paul's prayer was what he prayed for. Now, don't get me wrong in this reality. Praying for physical needs is not wrong. Um, we should rely on one another to pray for physical things. But you can see here in this passage, Paul is praying primarily He's primarily focused on their spiritual well-being. He's primarily praying uh, for spiritual needs. So the bond that Paul has with these people is so close that every time he thinks about this group of believers, he's led to plead with the Lord for their spiritual health and growth. I think that idea helps us to see what type of community of faith the Lord desires for us to have as a church family. That when we think of one another, when we see one another, what are we led to do? What is our inclination to do in those moments? 
Is it to pray? Is it to lift one another up for the, for our spiritual health, for our spiritual well-being? If not, maybe that's an indication that we don't have the type of spiritual community that God desires for us to have because Paul certainly had it with this group of people with the Philippian people. And like I said, for Paul, these spiritual realities always came before physical realities. If you flip over and look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it's that famous passage. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it's this idea that these spiritual realities always come before in priority the physical realities. So what are we thankful for? What are we thankful for as it relates to our salvation? What are we thankful for as it relates to the community of faith that God has provided us in this local church body? Are we led to pray? Those are all good questions for us and a good model for prayer here. Then I want to point out in verse 6, Paul makes this statement, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul here is referring to this theological doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. We see this alluded to throughout the scripture. There are two primary passages that speak to this. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is talking about whomever the Father has given me is mine, and no one can pluck them out of my hand. So we see that from Christ. If we are Christ's, we will always be Christ's. We will persevere in the faith because nothing can separate us and pull us out of his hand. And then also in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul talks about there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. There's not not life or death or principalities or power. There's nothing that can separate us and pull us away from Christ once we're joined to Christ. And so that's what Paul is alluding to here. It's this understanding of salvation that God never begins a work that he doesn't finish. God never begins a work that he doesn't finish. This is in contrast to a salvation that is dependent upon our faithfulness to gain salvation or the strength of our faith to continue or we will fall away from the faith. Of course, our salvation is not dependent upon our faithfulness. It's not dependent upon the strength of our faith in this daily way. Our salvation is dependent upon God. He does it. Therefore, he 
sustains it. I heard this illustration recently. I think it's a good one talking about what happened in Egypt during uh, God miraculously delivering the people of Israel from Egypt. You know that there were a series of plagues that God used to um, allow his people to be freed from Pharaoh's um, captivity and the slavery that they held there. And the last plague was the death angel. Right, And we know that God commanded his people through Moses that if they would put the blood on the doors and on the lintel of their home, that the death angel would pass over their home and the firstborn of their home would be saved because of that. And so one um, um, illustration was that there were these two guys and they were standing out in front of their homes the night before the um, Passover was to happen. The death angel was to come. And the one guy looks at the other and says, hey, are you a little concerned about what's about to happen tonight? I mean, I'm a little concerned about how these things are all going to play out. And the other guy said, no, no, no. I mean, haven't you put the blood on the door of your home and over the lintel and, and the blood is there so we know that the death angel is going to pass over us? But the first guy said, yeah, man, but look, we've got frogs and locusts and the rivers turned to blood. I mean, things are a little bit crazy. And yeah, I've put the blood there, but I'm not really sure about how all this is going to play out. The question is this, that night when the death angel passed over, whose firstborn was saved? It was both guys right? Even though the one guy had some concern and some would say his faith was not as strong as the level of assurance, the level of our individual faith is not what saves us, right? It's the presence of the blood applied to our account. So the death angel passed over because the blood was applied, not because of the level of faith that was held in that moment by those men. It, I think that's what Paul is alluding to here. Look, for those whom God has applied the blood of his son to their lives, they are saved, and he will complete this work of salvation. Now, we know that in one way, we are completely saved. We are totally justified, and we stand before Christ and before God in Christ. We are blameless. We are holy. We are pure because of what Christ has done on our behalf, and yet we know that in another way, in the here and now, we are not sanctified fully. We are still in the process of becoming like Christ and being transformed into the image of Christ. And so in that way, Paul says, look what he began at the moment of your conversion. He is going to continue to work in your life until it is complete until the day where you're glorified in heaven and you are fully complete in Christ, the work of God is completed within you. And so I say all that, I think there's the application for us is this. 
Some of us at times struggle with, Lord, what are you doing in my life? How is this all going to play out? I don't see what you're doing here. I don't see the, the purposes that you have in these things. Look, here's the encouragement. Please know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It's not up to the level of our faithfulness. It's not up to how strong or weak our faith is on a given day. Our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus because of what he's done in our life. And we can be encouraged in that way. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Now let's look at the last section here, verses 9 through 11. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It was Paul's desire and prayer for what? That their love would grow. Their love would grow. That is the pursuit that we are on as disciples of Christ. A deeper love for God and a deeper love for one another. A more full, a love that is abounding more and more in our relationship with the Lord and a love that is abounding more and more with our sacrificial love and service to one another. That is the litmus test for a faithful life in Christ. Is our love growing? That's what Paul says. Because Paul says here, in a very succinctly, in a very analytical way, that if you have love, the fruit that is produced in your life will be flowing out of it. Right? Sometimes we get that idea backwards. Well, I just need to do these things. What I'm called to as a Christian is to go down this checklist of, okay, I need to do this, and I need to do that, and I need to be involved in this. And Paul is indicating here that, yes, those things may be things we're to do, but what's more important than what we actually do is the motivation behind them, right? And Paul says here, the motivation that precedes fruit, true Christian fruit that comes from God is love. And of course, he expresses all this in 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about this. Look, if you don't have love, you're a noisy gong. You're a clanging cymbal. There's lots of activity happening, but without the motivating factor of love, we have missed the point. And without the motivating factor of love, what's coming out of our life may be a lot of activity, but it's not the fruit of Christ. It's not the fruit that he says here, the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus. 
right? That's what we want. That's what I want in my life. That's what you want in your life to, to have a life that's worth something, that's producing something that is from Christ and for Christ. And Paul says, in order for that to happen, your love has to be growing. And so we'll close today's lesson and time together looking at the word with this question. Is your love growing more and more? Is it abounding more and more? Can you look back at last month and last year and over the course of the uh, of time in your life and say, man, I'm not where I want to be, but I can say I love Christ more now than I ever have. And I love his church now more than I ever have. For some of us, we can say, praise God, because yes, that's true. And here would be the encouragement for us. Keep going. Don't stop now. But for others of us, maybe we look back and say, I don't know if I can say that. I mean, yeah, there's some activity in my life, but I can't really say that that has been motivated out of a deep-rooted love for God and love for others. Look, that can change. It, that love that, that needs to take place and needs to grow in your life, um, that hasn't been there, not, not because God is not there, not because the access to it is gone. It's you have to come back. You have to be restored. Like Jesus said in Revelation to the church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. And the process is to be restored back into intimacy with Him, to know Him, to pursue Him, and to be motivated by love. Thanks. Let's have a word of prayer together, and we'll go for today. Lord, thank you for these truths. They are truths that change our lives. Lord, thank you for the gospel message that we were slaves to sin and Christ died for sinners. He paid the debt we couldn't pay. And because of that, Lord, we want to live a life of love and service to you and others. Produce within us the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.